In a world torn by revolution, one man's relentless ambition will help forge a nation. This winter, embark on an epic 12-part journey through the tumultuous times of America's founding in our new series, Hamilton at War. A short distance away from the guns, a group of Hessians clawed their way through the blinding white smoke, unaware of Hamilton's cannons pointed directly at them. Hamilton gave the deadly order, give fire! Bodies disappeared in a gray cloud that turned red. Hamilton at War is not just an audio series, it's an immersive journey through time. The Revolutionary Series begins November 1st on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child, and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. Sword. That's the English War Office. You and I are both Scottish, and that doesn't apply. Lord Lovett. Bloody Omaha is the poster child for D-Day, and it should be, for all the courage shown and blood spilled. The other four beaches attacked on June 6th, were the three to the east of Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. British, Canadian, and Free French forces attacked these three beaches. On the other side of Omaha, and the farthest to the west, was Utah. The Allied planners knew Omaha would be the toughest nut to crack, because of the cliffs on both sides, and the funneling beach drawing the invaders under the fire of cliff guns, beach guns, and the guns of Pointe du Hope. The British beaches were not as bad, because all three, plus Utah, did not have bluffs to climb over with Germans shooting down as the land rose from the beaches. What the beaches did have were people and houses, because the area had been a seaside resort for centuries. The British may have had an easier initial beach invasion, but they faced door-to-door -door urban combat. Also, the area was not flooded as extensively as the Omaha-Utah area, and the road system was better with main roads leading to Caen. Caen was a key target for the British to take for the Allies, due to its port and airports, and the city was on a major highway leading straight to Paris. Montgomery's first day's objective was the capture of Caen. It took six weeks for this to happen, with the British blaming the Americans and vice versa for holding things up. The British did get as far as the Pegasus Bridge, to relieve the paratroopers who were holding the bridge intact. The British-Canadian invasion first started with a midget submarine parked on the left side of Sword Beach and once emerged on the right-hand side of Gold. The subs were one of the many gadgets the British would use on their beaches. There were five men on board, and the vessel was crammed with two engines, one diesel for surface and an electric for submerged traveling, a stove, a toilet, two bunks, and radio equipment. The submarine was to come to the surface and receive instructions on the invasion date. It surfaced on June 4th, but the invasion was delayed, so they went back to the bottom for 24 hours. When the invasion was on, it surfaced, sending out a green light to mark the easternmost edge of the invasion route and radio messages directing traffic. British bombardment started at 5.30 a.m., 20 minutes before the Americans. On board one ship were 171 French commandos. 
Commander Philippe Kiefer informed one of his sergeants, Count Guy de Moulard, of a change in targets. The unit was ordered to capture the German command post that was in a gambling casino. Guy de Moulard saluted and said, It will be a pleasure, sir. I have lost several fortunes in that place. The landing craft launched, heading for the beach. Two officers on different craft planned on quoting speeches from Shakespeare's Henry V on the way in. But one forgot the words, and the other wrote down the lines ending with, He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named. Lord Lovett's 1st Special Service Brigade came ashore to the tunes of the brigade bagpiper William Millen, but not before a bending of the rules. Lovett ordered Millen to play Highland Laddie, but Millen cited regulations from the War Office against playing in combat. Lovett thought and replied, That's the English War Office. You and I are both Scottish, and that doesn't apply. Millen played. The soldiers and commandos were told that casualty rates would be high, with one group of planners somehow coming up with an 84% projection. That rate was raised to 90% on the day of the invasion. In some sectors, the British did take heavy losses, with the 2nd East York Regiment taking 200 casualties on D-Day, the large proportion in the first hour of the landings at the town of Oistrium. The town is no stranger to invasion, with a historical monument marking the site of a repulsed British landing attempt on July 12, 1792. Hobart's funnies certainly cut down on casualties. The DD, or double drive, tanks worked well at Sword because the British launched them much closer to the beach at one mile, as opposed to the Americans, who launched from three miles out at Omaha. Fascine tanks, front loaded with wood, dropped their loads in ditches. Tanks outfitted with girders bridged anti tank trenches, and flail tanks went in front of the troops exploding mines. The spat between the British and Americans over the Americans not embracing the technology, except in the case of the DD tanks, has some validity. Hobart's Follies would have proved useful at Utah Beach, which had the same basic geography as the British beaches. The Follies wouldn't have worked as well on Omaha due to the slippery stone beach and the seawall that was too high for tanks to get up and over. Seeing the flail and fascine and bridge tanks at work, Major Kenneth Ferguson, 3rd British Division said, We were saved by our flail tanks, no question about it. Royal Navy frogmen went over the sides of the leading crafts and blew up individual obstacles, as opposed to the American method of stringing a number together and blowing them up in bunches. The next wave was the infantry. The British advantage at sword over the Americans at Omaha was the quality and quantity of the opposition. The 716th Static Infantry Division, with a third of the men being Ost battalions, primarily Georgians and Russians, defended Sword, commanded by General William Richter. Richter did not have much confidence in his men, with one of his generals writing, We are asking rather a lot if we expect Russians to fight in France for Germany against the Americans. Candid comments like that didn't appear in many German wartime dispatches. Richter's defenses were thin, with some bunkers more than half a mile apart, and he had no depth to his fighting strength. Any breakthrough from the Allies was assumed to be contained by one Panzer Corps, stationed seven miles away, and another north of Caen, 12 miles away. 
The issue was that someone had to release the tank divisions. The incoming British took casualties, but the resistance at the beach collapsed. Another army, an army of civilians, next stalled the British. French men and women came out of the ruins, ignoring the minefields and gunfire, to greet the invaders. Soldiers were hugged and kissed. The mayor of Colville, Sir Orne, went to the beach, beating the British dressed in his official sashes and wearing a shiny brass helmet. The Germans, mostly the Russian and Georgian Wehrmacht soldiers, started surrendering in droves. Captain Gerald Norton, Royal Artillery, came upon four Germans with their suitcases packed, who appeared to be awaiting the first available transportation out of France. The British shrugged, put the Germans to work unloading material onto the beach, and headed into the villages and inland with the main job of relieving the British 6th Airborne, holding the Orne and Conn bridges four miles inland. Lord Lovett, before the jump, assured General Richard Gale of the 6th that his commandos would arrive sharp at noon. They would be an hour late. Lovett's command headed south toward the bridges. Near the village of Laporte, the British were pinned down by machine gun fire. In Lovett's brigade, there were a number of German and Austrian Jews who had fled to England before the war. They came up with cover stories to explain away their German accents if captured, with most saying they had German nannies growing up. Their main job was interpreters, and the British did not wholly accept them. Private Peter Masters, not his real name, but one adopted and retained after the war, wanted to help clear the machine gun nest, but was ignored until summoned by an officer and told to walk straight down the road and see what is going on. Masters was to draw fire so the officer could determine the location of the gun. The officer considered Masters expendable. Masters determined it was a suicide mission, but remembered a scene from Gunga Din, where Cary Grant's character, surrounded by Indian rebels only yards away from overwhelming him, said calmly, You are all under arrest. Masters did the same, walking down the road, yelling out in German, Everybody out! Come out! You are totally surrounded. Give yourselves up. The war is over for you. You don't have a chance unless you surrender now. No one surrendered. But they didn't fire. The British officer ordered his men forward and took the machine gun nest. Two British tanks took out additional machine gun positions, arriving at the bridges and relieving the paratroopers. Lovett apologized for being late. Lovett would be the main figure in the film The Longest Day, played by Peter Lawford, actor and brother-in-law of President John F. Kennedy. Lovett was severely wounded by friendly fire six days after D-Day and never saw action again. He entered politics, but his financial investments went wrong and he declared bankruptcy, selling the family residence, Beaufort Castle, a year before his death in 1994. Beaufort Castle had been in the family since the 13th century. Piper Bill Millen played at Lovett's funeral. The landing at Sword was successful except for one operation, the failed hookup with Canadian forces coming off Juneau Beach. That would lead to the one panzer attack of the day, where the Germans might have pushed the Allies into the sea. The British landed 29,000 men on Sword and had over 600 casualties. They didn't achieve Montgomery's ambitious goals on day one, but they were ashore and they would stay ashore. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.